Hello, pediatric commuters. I'm very, very excited to broadcast the first episode of this podcast. The idea of the series appeared on a very long daily commute between York and Hull when I was also trying to prepare for my MRCPCH clinical exam. The idea of utilizing part of the commute to listen to a pediatric-themed podcast seemed an excellent way to learn. Our first guest is Dr. Nitin Makwana, a pediatric consultant from Sandwell and West Birmingham NHS Trust. Is an accredited pediatric allergist and kindly agreed to discuss about a very common but sometimes difficult diagnosis, cow's milk protein allergy. I have to mention that this podcast expresses the views of the host and guests and that medicine is a constantly changing science and art. One doctor may have a different way of doing things from another. Please double check your local and national guidelines before treating any patients with this condition. The podcast is not sponsored by any drug or device companies. Have a safe commute. Hello, Dr. Maguana. Thank you so much for accepting to participate in the first episode of The Pediatric Commuter. I would like, if possible, to discuss today with you regarding the cow's milk protein allergy. This is a quite common presentation in any pediatric ward or even in the GP area or A&E. I know you're a specialist and you see quite a lot of children that have this problem. Um, shall we start with what is the usual presentation of a child with cow's milk protein allergy? Okay, so uh, cow's milk, thank you very much for uh, asking me to join you on this podcast today. So cow's milk protein allergy is one of the commonest presentations I see in the allergy clinic. And depending on which sort of journals or papers you read, the sort of touted incidence is 2 to 15%. Uh, there's been some very good data recently from a study called Europreval looking at incidence of cow's milk protein allergy within Europe. And actually, the sort of baseline figure now is approximately 1% to 1.2%, but it varies dramatically between countries. So in the UK, what we know, the data says it's about 1%, but it's 50% non-IGE and 50% IGE. So actually, that's a huge difference what we thought before. Because most people only understand the IgE-mediated cow's milk protein allergy. And the problem with non-IgE-mediated cow's milk protein allergy, it can present like many other things that we will see in our clinics, in ED, on the ward, um, which may or may not be related. So if we think about the two presentations, IgE-mediated, I think, is fairly straightforward. Most people recognise um, mild allergic reactions, including angioedema, urticaria, flushing, pruritus. Um, and obviously that's a kind of allergy that can lead to anaphylaxis. So that's sort of tongue swelling, breathing difficulty, wheezing, pallor, passing out. So I think that's usually for most people straightforward. What is more difficult is non-IgE because so if, let's talk about the sort of non-IG type presentations. So one of the issues is that non-IG type symptoms can present 2 to 24 hours or even 48 hours after ingestion of the offending allergen. So the non-IG type symptoms we can talk about are reflux, constipation, eczema. Okay, And I've said those and the first thing most people think is, well actually we see loads of that, so how do we know which one is related to allergy and which one isn't? So, for example, in eczema, the things we sort of look at is how early the eczema began. So if the eczema began very early on in life, then we might be thinking of um, calcium protein allergy. So, you know, a lot of these parents say eczema was present from birth. And obviously we're thinking about what they were fed. So were they fed formula milk early on? 
where they fed formula milk later on and again the timing of the eczema starting so eczema that's resistant to treatment and when I talk about treatment, it has to be good eczema treatment. So you, know, you need to be thinking about bath oils, soap substitutes, emollients at least four times a day, and appropriate strength steroids to control the level of eczema you're seeing. One of the um, mistakes a lot of people make that I see in clinic is that you've got a child with fairly severe eczema, but he's only using hydrocortisone. And I think you need to start the steroid treatment at the right level for the level of eczema you've got, and then step down. Because if you can get control, which I often do just by doing that in my clinic, then actually, why do you want to change your child's diet? Now, if you've got the right treatment and the patient is complying and you are still not getting full control, and we're talking about infants at the moment, then you would need to think about calcium protein allergy. So I think that's one area of eczema. The second thing with eczema is clear um, relationships. So parents will say that, you know, I normally breastfeed, and whenever I give a milk product, within two to three hours, the eczema is terrible. So again, that temporal relationship. So just the, f the, f the flare up mm. of an eczema mm. when given a, yeah. an odd bottle yes. or rice yeah. pudding or yeah. so on. That's right. Okay. So above the background. Constipation, again, very common. Normal constipation is the child strains, 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 and then produces hard pellet-like stools. What we see with constipation that might be driven by a non-IG type allergy is a child will strain and strain but produce a normal stool. And that's because it's a dysmotility problem, which the cow's milk protein is affecting, rather than sort of a lack of fibre, lack of fluid problem. And reflux, again, very, very common. So again, reflux that resistant to treatment, or particularly bad reflux leading to what we call Sandefer syndrome, so back arching, screaming. Again, you should be thinking, if you're not on adequate, uh, if you're on adequate treatment and the child is still getting bad reflux, has a reflux, again, being temporally associated with introduction of cow's milk, that's the time to think about calcium protein allergy in non-IG type way. So that's a few presentations to think about. I think this is one of the most common presentations. We have a six or eight week old baby that mm. was started having milk, formula milk, two weeks ago and the parents noticed that the child is vomiting, is not his or her usual self mm. and is crying. They've tried all sorts of formula milks, um, none of them have made any yeah. difference they tried the anti-reflux one they yeah. tried um anti-reflux medication yeah. is this the right time for us to think about yes so absolutely so the example the example you've given is there's a clear temporal relationship as a change in the child with introducing the cow's milk they have tried appropriately anti-reflux formulas they have tried uh, anti-reflux treatments and they haven't worked so actually if a child has shown no improvement and we are happy that the doses are correct for that child then absolutely this is the time you'll be thinking could this be a non-IG type allergy and the other thing you have to remember is you can have reflux without calcium protein allergy and reflux has worsened by calcium protein allergy so you might need the treatment for reflux plus the treatment for non-IG type allergy to get control yeah makes sense um, so there is absolutely no mistake in treating for both of them, which is what we sometimes do on the yes. pediatric ward. <laughs> yeah, and I, th I think it's making sure though <coughs> you've done it in a stepwise manner. So sometimes you might do both because the history is so clear with calcium conduction, and there's and the other thing I suppose to think about is where there's more than one organ affected. So really bad reflux with eczema that will make it more likely to be a milk allergy relation. If it's just the reflux, you may think let's try your reflux treatment first for a couple of weeks. If you're no better, then we'll step on to the next stage, which is introducing some uh, hypoallergenic formula. Okay.
Now, I think this will be a very controversial controversial mm. uh, question, but can a baby mm. have cosmoprotein allergy even if the baby is breastfed and has been breastfed mm. since birth mm. without any formula milk? Yeah. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, there's, uh, it's often a misconception that you can't be cosmoprotein allergic if you're breastfed, but small amounts of cosmoprotein do come through in the breast milk. And some children who are cosmoprotein allergic are exquisitely sensitive and they will re react to that small amount of cow's milk protein coming through in the breast milk. So, um, for example, children again who've got bad eczema, who are being treated appropriately, mummy's breastfeeding, got um, milk in her own diet, you may think about whether mum might need to exclude milk for a period of time to see if that's contributing. Some parents say whenever they drink milk and they breastfeed the child becomes red and flushed um, and usually it's quite the history is usually quite clear though the parents have noticed and one of the others again common presentations particularly um, which can occur with breast milk is the colitis so the very well child who has fresh blood in their stools but no other symptoms and that can be a non-IG type presentation actually it's seen very commonly with breastfed infants um, and actually mum excluding milk from her own diet will stop that um, blood in the stool and that's a very common presentation of breast milk related cow's milk protein allergy. Okay so we shouldn't advise mums from the beginning mm. to stop using any sort of milk in her diet mm. but only if the child does not get better and has the same symptoms mm. despite you know our usual treatment um, then this is an alternative yes. just to ask yes. mum to you know, again, and it, Yes, and it's again thinking about whether you've done all the other um, interventions first, because also you don't want to unnecessarily take milk out of the mum's diet, because if you do, the important thing to remember is that mum must be supplemented with calcium and vitamin D, because obviously in theory she's not able to be giving that to a child. So often what we find is people have made the right decision um, about telling mum to exclude um, dairy products from her own diet but they haven't taken the next step which is to ensure that her diet is sufficient in calcium and vitamin D to then meet the child's needs as well through the breast milk. Okay. What types of milk? So let's say we decided okay this child might have a cosmic protein allergy. Um, what types of milk are there available on the market for us to advise parents or to prescribe actually because it's on prescription only. Mm. So um, once the decision is made that this child may have a cow's protein allergy the first and most important thing is if the child is breastfed to support breastfeeding and you know because at the end of the day that is still the best treatment for a cow's milk protein allergic child and if obviously the mum hadn't noticed any problems when she was because a lot of time this problem this issue is noted when they start formula milk or give formula milk so if the mum's said that actually I've been breastfeeding and the child's been fine then we would obviously promote that and now if the if a child for example mum gave formula milk and developed um, a sort of immediate type reaction and um, this child's also got bad eczema background then we might think well actually this child's obviously allergic to milk could the small amount of um, milk coming through mum's breast milk be driving this ongoing eczema? So in that kind of child, we might say, why don't you exclude um, uh, dairy from your own diet? So again, if you're going to carry on breastfeeding, the thing to decide is whether you tell mum to exclude or to continue dairy. And that's kind of scenarios we'll be thinking about in. Now, if for every reason mum cannot breastfeed or no longer wants to breastfeed, and that should be at a time when she decides to stop, then we have two types of formulas. We have extensively hydrolyzed formulas and we have um, amino acid formulas. 
um, and obviously extensively hydrolyzed formulas are those where the milk protein is chopped up and about 90% of it is under a certain amount of Dalton sizes. Uh, sorry, I should say 90% of it is tolerated by um, children who have um, a calcium protein allergy. Um, and amino acid formula is obviously 100% hydrolyzed, i.e. it's a single amino acids, and therefore should be tolerated by all children with calcium protein allergy. Um, how do we choose which one's better How for do we child? choose? Okay, yeah, so always an interesting question. So um, we would always aim for an extensively hydrolyzed formula first. Okay? Um, they're all fairly similar and the reason for that is one cost in today's NHS we have to think about cost um, and obviously the amino acid form is a lot more expensive so that's one reason but the second reason is a lot of evidence now to say that if you tolerate small amount of cow's milk protein in your diet remember extensively hydrolyzed formulas have still got some epitopes of cow's milk protein in there then actually you might speed up the resolution of your milk allergy so actually that's another good reason to give an extensively hydrolyzed formula. Now, the scenarios where I would be thinking about going straight for an amino acid formula is um, if there's faltering growth associated with what you've believed to be calcium protein allergy. So that child who's got diarrhea, has got colitis and is faltering, amino acid is probably first line. If this child's got multiple food allergies, so it's not just the milk allergy, they're allergic to egg, wheat, you know, other foods, then actually you may want to go straight for an amino acid formula in that child as well. If they've got severe atopic dermatitis, so these are children who, or, or children who've actually been re reacting to breast milk, because actually that tells me that this child is exquisitely sensitive to cow's milk protein, and therefore even the small amounts that come in through in breast milk are causing a problem, so it's likely that the small amounts of EHF are causing a problem. So therefore an amino acid formula would be straight, uh, immediate consideration in those. Um, and a child that doesn't tolerate an extensively hydrolyzed formula. We've already just said that it might be a taste issue, although the amino acids often taste worse. More recently, however, they have changed the uh, flavors, so it may be that it's tolerated better. Um, but secondly, remember we've said 90% of children will tolerate a extensively hydrolyzed formula, but 10% won't. So if that child's in that 10%, you may need to move on to an amino acid formula. But those are the scenarios which I've very, very, you know, which are not that frequent. So in most cases, EHF will be fine. In our pediatric sort of training, mm. I think we were taught many, many, on many, many occasions that if a child has PR bleed on presentations, mm. a blood in stool, fresh blood in mm. stool, you should start straight away with an amino acid mm. formula. Is is there any evidence for that? Or yeah, is that yeah, yes, again, that, that's what we're told. Now, there's no real evidence for that, and it, the evidence suggests even an extensively hydrolyzed formula should be fine for those children. And the good thing about that specific presentation is normally you see a difference within 72 hours. So again, I suppose what you could do is start an EHF, and if in a three days you've not seen a difference, you would maybe move on to an amino acid formula at that point. It's not like some of the... So if, if we think about the non-IGE, where what we would normally do um, is give a four-week exclusion diet, so if you thought it was, let's say, for example, it was eczema was driven by a non-IG type allergy, you'd put, given starting an extensively hydrolyzed formula, and you'd have to wait at least four weeks before you can say it's not or it has made a difference because of the sort of underlying um, uh, sort of physiological reason for non-IG type allergies, which no one really understands. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit more difficult, obviously, because you're then putting that child through four weeks 
of a formula they may not be suitable to. Therefore, there's problems with sleeping, all the uh, all the sort of clinical issues are still there. So I think in that case, the consideration I've just gone through will be more important about starting amino acid formula first. Okay. But in this scenario, because I know usually within 72 hours you see a difference, actually three days, and remember these children are usually well with a bit of blood in their stool, mm -hmm. you've probably got a bit of that leeway. Okay. This was actually my next question. Mm. These parents are usually sleep deprived, angry, yeah. upset. They've been mm. to they've seen many medical professionals. How long do we have to wait for something to work? Yeah, well, okay. If the parents come back in yeah. three days or call the ward and mm. say the child is still upset, still crying, mm. the eczema is still there. Yeah. Shall we continue for two weeks, three weeks? Yeah, yeah so th that, that's a very difficult question. And sometimes you have to make a decision that necessarily doesn't fit with what I've just said. Um, so if the parents have tried multiple milks already, they've, you know, had issues um, with sleeping, then the tether, the child is faltering to grow, you, you know, you start the amino acid formula, as we've already said, and um, you'd have to wait four weeks. You cannot tell the parent, and I suppose it's managing expectations. You have to tell parents it will take four weeks, potentially, before you see a difference. We're hoping you see a difference sooner, but we have to wait four weeks before we can say yes or no, it hasn't worked. Now, in some parents, those features might not be there, but the, the tether. And in those patients, I will often start an amino acid formula straight away just to get them on board to say, yes, that we can solve it by doing this. Because what you don't want is in that family to start another milk. You have four weeks on EHF. It doesn't work. And they say, right, I'm going to start another milk now. And then they say, well, you've given them one milk. So how do we know this one's going to work? But what I say now, which is quite recent, is that what we now think about doing is stepping down. So you might be on an amino acid formula. But from what I've just said earlier, that actually if you get a little bit of cow's milk protein in epitopes into your diet, you might help speed up your resolution of milk allergy. We now think about stepping down. So what I might say to parents is, what we're going to do is start you on a milk formula to get things under control quickly. Okay, so we'll say that you'll be on that for four to six weeks potentially. Once I know that it can work and that we've got things under control, then we might convert to an EHF. And the reason for that is, a, I think you'll be fine with it, but B, it might help grow out your milk allergy quicker. So again, it's managing expectation. Because if you haven't told them that at the beginning, what happened in six weeks? So I'm going to change the milk now. So no way. You've, you know, I've got a completely different child. We've had, you know, this horrendous screaming eczematous child for six months. <laughs> You've got it under control. In six weeks, we've got a child. We're sleeping through. Everything's great. We are not going to step down. Okay, uh, so it's managed expectation, and again, it's being sensible and individualizing. Sometimes I'll say, okay, that's fine. Well, why don't we give it three months? But then we should try stepping down. Yeah. Okay, so um, it, 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 there's no hard and fast rule that has to be at a certain time. It's working with a family, but helping them understand why you might step down. Okay. And I think I suppose the other thing to say. All of this should be done with a dietitian. I mean, the most important person. This is what I want yeah, my clinic is probably not me actually. Yeah. It's a dietitian. I make the diagnosis, but a lot of these decisions are made by a dietitian with dietitian supporting the family. So I think they are the key person. So I don't think really you can manage allergy without the support of a dietitian. Okay. Let's say we have an abs an excellent GP that can is absolutely competent to manage um, this in their in their little practice. Should they refer to, let's say the child got mm. better after changing to a um, <clears throat> special formula, 
should they be referred to the allergy clinic? Okay, so again, it comes down to which type of allergy we're talking about. So if it's an IgE-mediated type reaction, then the NICE guidelines say that all of these children should probably be referred to an allergy clinic. reason for that is we can confirm the diagnosis, um, we often have a multidisciplinary team, so we can put all that sort of dietetic input, which the GP may not have time to do. Okay, so I think you know IgE-mediated, NICE guidelines are very clear probably should be referred, at least as a one-off, to be tested. An example I give you of that is a child where they, I can't remember how old they were, they must have been quite young, a year or two old, ate a, a cracker with peanut butter on it. Yeah, so they took a bite, promptly had lip swelling, eye swelling, went to the GP, GP said, oh yes, exposure to peanuts, you need to avoid peanuts, didn't refer, you know, which is, you know, uh, it sounds yeah. sensible, uh, but didn't give any other sort of um, um, treatment plans. Three years later, the child is so the child's about five now, six years old. Um, it goes to McDonald's, has a burger, promptly has anaphylaxis, not a peanut in sight. All right. Um, so the question is, well, what happened? So they come to the clinic, we skin test them, and they're negative to all the nuts, but come up positive to sesame. sesame. Okay. And actually, if you go back in the history, the the bun was a sesame bun. And if you go back to the original reaction, it was peanut butter on a sesame cracker. So actually, sometimes we can be fooled even with a good history. So confirming the, um, that you've got the right allergen is really important. But also then we would prescribe that child an auto-injector and teach them how to use it and the dietitian will go through avoidance in much more detail. So I think that's like different to non-IG. Now for non-IG actually, there's something called the IMAP guideline, which is made for primary care specifically. And actually, if it's non-IG type symptoms, uh, it's a very nice, clear protocol to follow. It's an online um, pathway as well, which you can click on and it will take you through. And actually, the GP is, can and should probably manage non-IGE within primary care, because they can do. And it's just about exclusion, confirming whether the exclusion has worked. If it's worked, then to maintain that um, uh, sort of dairy-free diet, and it gives you clear plans of when to introduce, how to introduce. So actually what I would recommend for people to read in answer to your question is the IMAP guideline, which gives very clear um, indications of what and how to manage uh, cosmic protein allergy in primary care. That's really useful. Thank you so much for this piece of information. I really didn't know what IMAP was, so I'm, I really hope our listeners will, will um, look it up on Google. I'm sure they yes. can find yeah, it. Yeah, if you just got IMAP guideline Excellent. primary care, it'll, it comes up. Lovely. <clears throat> and now our final question regarding the calcium protein allergy. Mm. Let's say the child got better, everything's fine, the family's happy, the child is thriving. What do we do next when they grow up? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so we've, uh, we, so we're talking about a child who we've diagnosed and um, they're on a milk-free diet now, is that right? Okay. okay. So if they're under one, what we do certainly here is at the age of 12 months, we ask them to start introducing baked milk products into their diet. Um, now, that's done in a very specific group, and there's, again, I'd recommend your readers listen to or read the BSACI, Calcium Protein Allergy Guidelines, because there's certain indications where actually it's safe to introduce baked milk from the age of 12 months, which is most children. Um, the only ones we wouldn't think about doing that in is children who have had anaphylaxis to cow's milk at an early age. Now, we have a very sort of, uh, we follow what we call a milk ladder, 
and there's a number available on the internet. And I suppose the thing to always bear in mind, they're all slightly different. So the, there is an IMAP milk bladder, which is suited to children with non-IG type allergy, because it actually moves through the stages quite quickly. Because with non-IG, we're not expecting them to have a serious anaphylactic type reaction. Whereas for an IgE type um, allergy, we don't want to go up too quickly because obviously that risk of a anaphylaxis. So actually the milk ladder in the BSACI guidelines is a much more slower milk ladder. So from 12 months onwards, we say start malting milk brisket. There's a crumb, big crumb, eighth of a biscuit, quarter of a biscuit, and they work their way through that stage one. Then they go into stage two. So there's a whole load of products with a bit more milk in it, which is again processed baked and the reason that most children will tolerate this is because the baking causes a changes in the protein itself so therefore the protein breaks down it's spread through a matrix so it's diluted and therefore most children's bodies won't recognize it as milk anymore so they can eat it and that has two good things about two good uh, sort of effects one you've expanded that child's diet so it's an improvement on the quality of life and secondly there is some evidence that it may help you grow up your milk allergy quicker there has been a recent systematic review which has looked at this in a bit more detail which has said that actually when you combine the studies there is um, no evidence that it does help you grow your milk allergy quicker but no evidence doesn't mean that it's not true okay. okay so and again what they highlighted was taking the scientific component side it still improves the quality of life so actually there's two good reasons potentially for introducing baked milk. So the other thing we'll be doing for these children is we know that most children will grow out of their milk allergy around the school age. There is data coming through saying actually milk allergy can be more persistent and that is the case. You know, there are children who won't grow out of it till they're much older. But in our clinics, again, it depends on what clinic you're in. If you're in a quaternary level clinic, you'll probably see a different level of uh, milk allergy to secondary to tertiary level and actually I would say most of our children do grow out of milk allergy over time so we do yearly testing and once we're happy that actually the evidence from our testing is that you're growing out your milk allergy we'll move on to stage three and stage four stage three being less well-cooked products with milk and stage four being milk itself so again it's a making sure that you don't delay the initial baked milk introduction but making sure you don't turn to go into more pure milk until you're happy that this child is safe introducing more um, milk-containing products. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. It was absolutely wonderful to get this really condensed information about cow's milk protein allergy, which is a pathology that we see very, very often and we are quite stressed about um, in the acute setting because we don't have that much experience like you have in clinics yeah. and managing to discuss more with families and um, have the help of dietitians and allergy nurses and so on. So once again, thank you so much for accepting to participate in this podcast um, and hopefully we will discuss about other subjects in the future. In the Absolutely, future. <laughs> yes, more than happy to. Thank you. Thank you for staying with us until the end. I'm looking forward to hear any feedback from you. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Pediatric Commuter and let us know if you have any ideas of themes that could be discussed in the next episodes. If you enjoyed it, please take a few minutes to rate us on your podcast app. Have a lovely day and enjoy your commute. Bye!